Thanks for listening to and sharing our body politic. As you know, we're only a few months into this show and we're shaping it with lots of input from listeners like you. So I want to ask you a small favor. After you listen today, please head over to Apple Podcasts on your phone, tablet, laptop, or anywhere you listen and leave us a review. We read those because your ideas matter to us. Thanks so much. This week, a look at what it takes to be a White House correspondent with Yamish Alcindor. First, the guilty verdict for police officer Derek Chauvin and what it means to Tamir Rice's mother. I'm Samaria Rice, the mother of Tamir Rice and the CEO of the Tamir Rice Foundation and founder. Earlier this month, Samaria Rice and her family sent a letter to the Department of Justice asking them to reopen their investigation into her son's killing. He was just 12 when a Cleveland police officer shot him in 2014. Ms. Samaria Rice, thank you for being on the show. I appreciate y'all having me. Thank you. So we are speaking with you on the day of the verdict of Derek Chauvin, Officer Chauvin, guilty on all counts. We're taping right after this happened. How are you feeling right now? What are you thinking right now? For the most part, I am relieved to hear that we have a conviction, right? But with the conviction, we see officers that go to jail and they serve 10 months, 18 months, uh, two years, five years. That is not enough time for the death of anyone by the hands of the police. He should be in jail 20 years or plus, you know, as far as I'm concerned. And as far as Tamir is concerned, um, Timothy Loman should be indicted and convicted, along with his partner, Frank Grombach, indicted and convicted for the murder of my son. My son was killed less than a second. And he should be, they should both go to jail for the rest of their lives. Has it been painful for you to watch this trial, the Chauvin trial, knowing that um, your son's killing did not result in a conviction? Well, um, I'm never upset about someone receiving a form of justice. I mean, it has been very emotional and painful just to watch the trial itself because I know they wouldn't do a number lying and look like a dog and pony show. That part was very painful because I can remember what I went through in my process of going into the grand jury and me and my children coming out crying and they blaming us like it was our fault that Tamir was dead and and I prayed on it. You know, I actually prayed on a guilty verdict because I did not want to see our people attacked by the militant army um, of law enforcement people out there or the army that's out there. I just didn't want to see our people get hurt. Yeah, a lot of people, you know, including me, were also worried about what might happen um, depending on the verdict. Um with Tamir's legacy, with um, George Floyd's legacy, with the legacy of so many people who have died, um, whether there was a conviction or not, what do you want these legacies to mean? What do we want to build from here? Well, I will hope that each family can develop a way to 
honor and give back to the community. That's what I'm doing in the Tamir Rice Legacy, building a center to offer after-school free programming for inner-city children, creating a safe place just to make sure that these children have the exposure that they may not get by living in the inner city. You know, whatever they can do, I think my way of building Tamir's legacy is also giving me you know, a little bit of healing and to make sure that my son did not die in vain and building him a legacy. So I will hope that other family members can develop something and make sure that they're, you know, involved in their community and stay connected. What What do you want to see for the kids of Cleveland? I just want them to know that someone actually cares about their education, their well-being, besides their mom and their dad and maybe their family that a total stranger wants to see them create magic, Black magic. Uh, We have so many talented children in the city of Cleveland, as we probably have in a lot of our urban communities, uh, and they get overlooked and, you know, they don't, people don't pay attention to them. So I want to be able to uh, create that uprise of children by investing in them because that's what I did with my children. I invested in my children and that's how I was able to have three high school graduates all through. We went through a horrific trauma by losing Tamir. When people start talking about the political implications of the deaths of children at the hands of police, people who love their own kids sometimes forget what some of the stakes are in protecting everyone's children. So how do you think both police and lawmakers can make sure that everyone's kids are protected? I think at this point that the higher people up, the powers to be, they know that America has been infiltrated with white supremacy, right? So... I don't know how they allow, because that's what they're doing. They allowing the government, law enforcement to commit genocide on American citizens, right? So who's going to take responsibility for that? How does the police bill of rights trump the constitutional rights? That's what I don't understand. I just feel that the government needs to figure out what part of the country they want and just let us have the other part of the country and just leave us alone. Something you said really stuck out to me just then, which is that you said, you know, they need to give us one part of the country and take the other. And in some ways, that's what Charles Blow, the columnist from um, The New York Times said. You know, he wrote a a whole book, um, uh, The Devil You Know, arguing that Black Americans could relocate many to the South and control a whole block of the country. Um, What do you think of a plan like that to sort of consolidate Black citizens in a place that is effectively Black-controlled? I do agree with him. I did not know Charles Blow said that. I did an interview with him many, many years ago. But if, and I did not read his book. But if that's what he said, to divide the country up, That way the whites can stay where they need to stay and we can stay where we need to stay. So be it. That's where I'm at with this because there's no reconciliation with this. There's no 
having no conversations, no compromising. What are we going to talk about when we have video coverage of all of these murders? You know, let me just um, also say something that, that Charles Blow said. He called some of the protests last summer a social justice Coachella, and Coachella is a music festival. So basically saying people were going out in his mind and sort of performing. What do you think of the protest? Have they been helpful or are they performance or both? Well, um, I want to say both because some of the protests, um, you know, people protest for freedom of speech and to say what they have to say on what's on their mind, right? Make demands and things like that. I think those protests makes things uncomfortable if they're done right. Uh, when you disrupting traffic or, you know, making a, making a strong statement, not necessarily, you know, destroying anything or burning anything down. I'm not talking about that. But when you make people uncomfortable, that that's what I have been telling people for years. Make them uncomfortable because they sh- it's nothing comfortable about black and brown people continue to get killed in America in the 21st century. So continue to make these people uncomfortable. It is what it is. But to put on a um <laughs> to put on a show about the death of some of 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 people loved ones is very disrespectful. And I did not know there was a hustle on black death. And that's disturbing because my son is no hustle. So the things that I have seen in the media when it comes to these protesters, these protests, these rallies, um, especially when I see certain individuals leading them, I can't never take them seriously because we've been taking them seriously for so long And we ain't got no change. I want to end on this note. You know, you have really given so much of yourself just in this interview. What do you think Tamir would think of what you have done with his legacy? (laughs) He would probably be proud of me, you know. He would be proud of me and knowing that uh, I'm really, really trying to make some change. And um, it's just a tragic, you know, it's just, it's a tragic that I have to live my life like this. But I know Tamir will want me to have some peace in my life. So that's what I'm trying to create. I'm trying to create some peace because whatever I do, I don't never regret, you know, um, losing Tamir has destroyed my life. I'm going to be honest with you, destroyed my family. America has robbed me of nurturing my son has robbed me of allowing him to grow up to be a man. I don't even know what my son would never look like because I don't, I would never know what he's, he, I only got a vision of him being a little boy. And how sad is that? But I'm still here and, and I, I'm working to make sure that we all are okay at the end of the day. You know, that's all I can do. Ms. Rice, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you guys for having me, and it was a pleasure. That was Samaria Rice, mother of Tamir Rice and founder and CEO of the Tamir Rice Foundation. We love to hear from our listeners, so every week we invite you to call the Speak Line. Right now we want to know, if you were the mayor of your city or town, how would you handle law enforcement and public safety? 
To leave us your message, call 929-353-7006. That's 929-353-7006. Or go to ourbodypolitik.show for a Google form to respond in writing. Each week, we bring you news of the COVID-19 pandemic and focus on how it's impacting communities of color. Today, we're bringing Our Body Politic contributor and epidemiologist, Dr. Kavita Trivedi, back on the show to help us better understand this news. Hi, Dr. Trivedi. Hi, Fry. Nice to be back. It is great to have you back. And in uh, the East Coast over here, you're on, you're holding it up on the West Coast for us. Um, things are getting springy and delightful, but what's going on with COVID. Yeah. So we're certainly seeing in some states like Michigan and Florida and and in other states in the Northeast that cases are climbing. We are seeing some uh, increase in hospitalizations, but I'm hoping that with the really solid rollout of vaccinations that the Biden administration has put into place and states have implemented, we will continue to see the um, virus kind of held at bay, and we will hopefully see those cases in certain states starting to come down. Now, let me tell you about something that happened to me. I saw one of my neighbors, lovely guy, Haitian immigrant, he, and I was like, yeah, how you doing? Blah, blah. Did you get the vaccine? And he was like, well, I heard all that news about them, and I don't know. Now, literally, there's a vaccine site a block away from us at a college, a block away. And I, and I said to him, well, they're giving out the Pfizer vaccine not the Johnson & Johnson, which is what he was con- specifically concerned about. And he said he would get it. So that's a win in one way. He's going to get it. But I'm like, did I just imply that people shouldn't get Johnson & Johnson? That's, I, I was thinking tactically, but was that bad? What am I, what am I even doing here, Dr. Trevetti? <laughs> so first of all, you're encouraging somebody in your community to get vaccinated. So that is really important. And then the second piece about the J&J vaccine is definitely something that we should, you know, kind of delve into. So the J&J vaccine um, has been associated with um, six cases of cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, which is a clot in the brain. The six cases occurred in about 1.4 million women uh, between the ages of 20 and 50. So of all people that got the J&J vaccine, so far we know that the rate, the risk, and the rate of having this rare complication is one in one million. So so I, I think it's important for us to understand what that risk looks like. For example, Fry, um, you know, getting into a fatal car crash is one in 103. So, you know, when we talk about looking at that risk that most of us or many of us take every single day without a second thought, and then we're pausing when we think about a one in one million risk, we have to really think about what risk we're willing to take. And the bottom line is the J&J vaccine is extremely effective at preventing severe illness, hospitalization, and death related to COVID-19. And that has not changed even based on this rare complication. So Dr. Trivedi, uh, you know, you are a parent and we are in a kind of interesting space with kids and vaccines. So how close are we to kids being eligible to get the vaccine? Yeah, I think we're actually relatively close. We had some really good 
information come out of uh, Pfizer BioNTech, uh, the clinical trial data uh, looking at 12 to 15 year olds showed us that the Pfizer vaccine was extremely efficacious in that age group. It was actually 100% efficacious in preventing COVID-19 infection. Uh, And they've applied for an EUA and we should be receiving that go ahead in the next, you know, potentially few weeks. So we're hoping that the kind of middle schoolers will be able to be vaccinated uh, before they start school in the fall next year. For children under the ages of 11, clinical trials are ongoing with all of the uh, currently available vaccines. Since this demographic group is slightly less at risk for severe infection in general, I think there will likely be a longer clinical trial period that will be required for regulatory approval. And again, we have to keep in mind that risk-benefit analysis. Given that they're at low risk, we really have to ensure that giving the vaccine is safer for them than not receiving the vaccine. So the data will have to likely be longer and be a little more persuasive. Now, last time that we had you on, you said that two fully vaccinated people can hang out together unmasked like two spoons in a drawer. But what about families getting together where the parents are vaccinated, but the kids aren't? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, if parents and grandparents are vaccinated, kids are inherently safer, right? Because their bubbles are safer. So I'm not really concerned about kids interacting with vaccinated parents or vaccinated grandparents. But I think what we have to think about more is about what about kids interacting with other kids, right? And in this situation, I would probably recommend an individual risk assessment where you determine if the child themselves are at a higher risk for severe infection. So do they have obesity? Do they have uncontrolled diabetes? Do they have uncontrolled asthma? If they don't, you could determine it feels safe for kids to interact without the, you know, infection prevention measures in place without masking, without distancing. If the individual risk assessment, you know, that you do reveals that they are at higher risk for severe infection, then you might allow them to maybe only interact indoors, but with masks on or only outdoors without masks on. Something else that comes to mind from my little personal experience and also from the show, of course, is travel. You know, I want to go see all the places that I've always wanted to see, but I haven't. And pandemic interruptus, what is the deal with travel? You know, how safe is it for vaccinated people to travel And is there any reason to hold off? Right. So again, once you're vaccinated, you can, I think, feel really comfortable or more comfortable with traveling. Um, Traveling by car is completely reasonable. By air, when you're vaccinated, also is completely reasonable. Uh, You may still want to take into account transmission rates. For example, I wouldn't probably recommend traveling to an area with high transmission rates, uh, especially where variants are potentially more prevalent. Of course, masks should still be worn on the airplane, especially since you are mixing people on the plane from different parts of the world with different transmission rates of COVID-19 and different circulating variants. So um, I I think all of us who are vaccinated should be thinking about our travel plans and should also talk to our vaccine-hesitant friends about the fact that they should feel so comfortable with traveling once they are too vaccinated. Well, Dr. Trevetti, as usual, thank you so very much. 
Thanks so much for having me again, Fry. That was Dr. Kavita Trivedi, Our Body Politics health contributor. My next guest makes race and racism a priority within her already very high-profile reporting beat. Yamiche Alcindor is the White House correspondent for PBS NewsHour and a political contributor for NBC News and MSNBC. She worked as a local and national print and television political reporter for many years and covered the Trump administration starting in 2018. Yamiche, thanks for coming on Our Body Politic. Thanks for having me. I'm just so excited to talk to you. And I want to start with a little bit of a retrospective on what we should have learned from covering the Trump era. It feels like we should we should have learned that we have to be really, really careful about how we air people's misinformation and lies. And we have to put everything that we put um, on the news, on the radio, on TV, in print, in context. And, and it really means that we can't just kind of be stenographers. I remember when I was up to become a White House reporter, one of my mentors, a great woman named Athalia Knight, she was a longtime Washington Post reporter. She said, the first thing I should tell you is make sure that you don't become a stenographer because it's very easy to say the president said this today, that's news. When in fact, that's not what it is. It should be the country's going through this. The president said this. Here's what that actually means, right? That That's the way that we need to be covering politics. And as someone who, who has covered um, really, I would say kind of ground level reporting as a local reporter, as a cops reporter, as a, a local beat reporter in a small town um, in Long Island and other places. I think what we need to also do is not lose sight of um, how people are impacted with politics in their in their daily lives and what they're talking about at their kitchen tables. And I say that to say there was this idea that that. Donald Trump was not known to people and that Hillary Clinton was the person because she had been first lady and the secretary of state that she was the one who had the star power. But anyone in almost any single household knew that Donald Trump from the moment, at least in my for my generation, the moment you said Donald Trump, it meant money, it meant the Simpsons, it meant someone who had had a big reality TV show. So I think for me, we have to He really, showed up in all the rap lyrics. Right. So I think we really have to understand it and really think through um, what we mean by star power and it not just be this Washington-centered thing when we think of, of the clout that people have. Yeah. And so what was it like moderating a presidential debate during one of the most important cycles in history? I mean, what was it like on that night or that day when you were preparing for that? How did you feel? What did you want to go in and do? And how did you feel afterwards? It was nerve wracking. I was really, really nervous about knowing the information, about speaking clearly, about making sure that I came away with a sense that we had gotten to the issues that were really important to, to people. And especially in my case, as a, as a child of Haitian immigrants, being from a working class neighborhood in Miami, I wanted to feel like the people who I grew up with, they felt like their voices were part of the debate. I think I came away feeling proud and I walked away feeling like we got to all the issues, including race. I think there was a real feeling that identity politics is how we got here and that people had leaned too much on on, on race. And that's how we ended up with, with President Trump. And I always kind of pushed back on that. I said, I always think that identity politics, quote unquote, is really just about the fabric of America, how we started the country, who built the country, and that you cannot talk about race enough. And for me, I think that that was something that I always felt like I wanted to make sure I did and be true to myself. For me, at my heart, I'm a civil rights journalist who really cares about race and social justice. And those issues, I think, had to be part of what I wanted to do in the debate. 
Yeah, I heard a lot of compliments of that debate and also, to be honest, some regret. Like, why has this never happened before? Why have we never had a serious discussion of race as a political driver like before? And um, one of the things for me, as you know, I have been speaking out a bit about how I feel the, the narrative of race as a driver of political choice was suppressed in the 2016 election coverage, at least in the newsroom where I was. And... Um, what do you think political editors and reporters need to understand now in the era of relitigating voting rights, et cetera? What do we need to take into um, understanding how race is a driver of political choice and uh, political power? I would say the the biggest lesson of 2016 and 2020 should be that white people really care about being white just as much as Black people care about being Black. Whether they're rich or poor or in different parts of the country, we found that white voters in particular, they also are um, very much motivated by race, very much motivated by the privilege that they think that they have and the privilege that they do have, and that that has to be a part of the conversation. Race is not just a story about people of color, quote unquote, but a story of those who are assigned the race of white and what that means to them every single day, that whiteness can be really important. I remember doing, interviewing this man in Wisconsin and wanting to ask him about why he was why he was supporting President Trump. And he was, I wanted to ask him about healthcare. That was my story. I was focused on that. I kept asking him, you know, what do you think about healthcare? What do you think about healthcare? And he kept responding, well, people think I'm racist. People think I'm racist. And finally I said, okay, well, why do people think you're racist? And he went on this whole diatribe about how he didn't think that a Black girl like me should be working at the New York Times. And there are too many Black people in this town, which was literally about 97 to 98% white when I was talking to him. But, and you know, what, what that exchange taught me was that he was trying to tell me what was motivating him and I wasn't listening. I was like, oh no, it's definitely the healthcare proposal. And he was like, no, it's the race. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. No, believe me, I, I have learned so much about this country and learned so much as a field reporter, which I think really shapes, you know, who I am. And you've done so much field reporting, including in your family's nation of origin, Haiti. And so what was that like? Let's go back to that. Um, when you went to Haiti, what was it like as a Haitian American to go there and report at such a heavy time for such an incredible nation, which, you know, fought for and won its freedom? You know, there's that saying, this is my ancestors' wildest dreams. And the moment I touched down on Haiti as a reporter, a working journalist who had interviews with the foreign minister, I thought I am my ancestors' wildest dreams because I have family members who were jailed under the dictator um, in, in the 1980s who could not dare have thought of, of being a journalist on the island nation of Haiti. And that had such pride, being the first Black nation, the most successful slave rebellion in, in 1804. It's, it's such a date that Haitians have such pride in. But at the same time, it's a country that has just really, really had so many different struggles. And I try every time I'm in a job to really um, write about Haiti, keep it top of mind. My father, who still lives there, he uh, he's often reminding me, guess what? You are so much a, a child of Haiti and don't forget that. My neighborhood in Brooklyn, Crown Heights, is very, very rich with Haitian Americans and Haitian immigrants. And during the Trump years, many of them were thrown into a limbo of whether the temporary protected status, which ensured they could stay, would be upheld. And um, among many things, you and I bring a lived experience of what it means to have these intergenerational ties to the African diaspora. And this may not be true, but do you feel like your objectivity has ever been questioned, you know, as you report on Haiti because you have ancestry there? I mean, I think it's fascinating that 
and, and by fascinating, I mean troubling, that for so many Black reporters, anything related to our Blackness makes people question our objectivity, but that doesn't happen for whiteness to sort of return to these constructs. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I've still been a journalist who wants to get the right story right and wants to get the story fair. Um, but I also I think I'm a journalist that definitely has deep convictions about what's unconstitutional, what racism looks like, and that it's bad, that racism shouldn't be this thing that should be allowed to continue and grow and fester and mutate, um, and that we should be shining a light on that. So I think that that is definitely, if there's any bias, the bias that I have is that racism is wrong and that treating people who are vulnerable um, in a way that's unfairly is wrong. So I think I bring that to the job for sure. But I also think that I bring this this feeling that I want to make sure that all sides of the sides of these sides the credible sides, not, you know, scientists who say climate change isn't real, but I mean the sides of the government, um, the sides of, of, of different warring factions that they should be heard. But I also think that we have to be um, very wary of false equivalencies. And that means that if I'm going to be re- doing a story about civil rights and voting, I can I can interview Republicans who say, look, we, this is what we think about voter fraud. But we should also say, well, here's what here's the percentage of voter fraud that actually happened, which is about zero. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm also fascinated by, um, you know, kind of this political era seems to be one where some people feel like reporters should be a little less aggressive with the Biden-Harris administration. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what your expectations are for covering the Biden-Harris administration fairly and what that means to you. For me, what it means to cover them fairly, to cover the Biden administration fairly, is to bring up the issues that are on people's minds and to bring up questions where the administration is is having challenges. So immigration is a big one. It's it's a colossal endeavor. The vice president um, has been handed part of this to deal with the Northern Triangle countries. But in a lot of my questioning during the last press conference, it was about kind of what we're seeing, these, these rising numbers of unaccompanied minors. And I think there were some people who definitely took issue and felt like the media was focused focusing too much on something that President Biden couldn't control. But we also have to point out that he made the decision to follow U.S. law, to stop breaking U.S. law, to allow unaccompanied minors. And and that has led to his own Department of Homeland Security um, uh, secretary said, we're going to see something like a 20-year high when it comes to the number of of migrants coming to the border. And I think that there are some who feel like that's the media beating up on Biden. But in fact, it's just asking tough questions. It's holding them accountable. It's fact-checking them if they need to be fact-checked. And it's asking about how they plan to to deal with some of the biggest issues of our day, which include COVID and immigration and race and a number of other topics. Well, Yamish, that is great stuff to remember as we look ahead at your coverage on PBS. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That was Yamish Alcindor, White House correspondent for PBS NewsHour. on the show, we bring you a roundtable called Sippin' the Political Tea. And joining me this week is our body politic contributor, Aaron Haynes, editor-at-large at the 19th. Hey, Aaron. Hey, Farai. I think we may need to sip something a little stronger this week. And April Ryan, White House correspondent for The Griot and political analyst at CNN, is joining us as our special guest. Welcome to Our Body Politic, April. Hello, Farai. Hello, Aaron. Hey there. So great to have you. And Aaron, what have we got on tap today? 
Well, I think we have to start by talking about, uh, you know, policing and police reform. You had the Derek Chauvin verdict uh, come out in Minneapolis. And, and at around the same time that verdict was being announced, you had a 16-year-old girl, Micaiah Bryant, being shot and killed by a Columbus police officer. And, and, and you also had this week the, the wake and the funeral for Dante Wright. A lot of the Black lawmakers I'm talking to this week are saying that, that there's building momentum to do something about police reform in this moment, uh, you know, via the, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. So a lot going on in politics. Uh, I want to stay on the Chauvin trial. I know it's been top of mind for all of us this week. So uh, let's start with Vice President Kamala Harris, who addressed the nation shortly after the verdict was passed. Today, we feel a sigh of relief. Still, it cannot take away the pain. A measure of justice isn't the same as equal justice. This verdict brings us a step closer and... The fact is, we still have work to do. April, I'm wondering how you've been processing the Chauvin trial and the verdict. How have I been processing it? Um, it's, it's actually different, Aaron. Um, you know, I've watched over the years many of these cases, particularly um, during the Obama administration. And I processed it by watching history being made. You know, we have seen so many police officers have qualified immunity and, you know, they get the benefit of the doubt and there's no accountability for the death, you know, i.e. Freddie Gray in Baltimore. You know, he should have never been brought into custody, but he just made eye contact with the police officer and therefore he was considered guilty and, and then ensued a chase. And at the end of the day, no one was held accountable for this. But now in Baltimore, they have cameras in police vehicles. They're also trying to de- training for de-escalation. Um, that's in Baltimore, but in other places, let's go to, to New York, Minnesota, Charleston, okay? Walter Scott, remember that? You know, in, in that case, the police officer tried to obscure the scene. A lot of these officers are not held criminally liable. And this was history being made. And then after that issue, um, when the Derek Chauvin uh, verdict came in, you know who I thought about? I thought about Sabrina Fulton. I thought about Gwen Carr, the mother of Eric Garner, who said, I can't breathe 11 times. It's victory, but yet heartache. Why could my son not be here? And then why could that not happen uh, for my son? You know, the victory. So it's a lot that goes into this. I look back at the history to today. And will the momentum continue? You know, so we have to wait and see how this plays out because you still have a Republican faction that is pro-policing and does not want to see any kind of de-escalation training or tactics. You know, it, it's, it's, it's a strange dynamic. You know, I just I, I want to see how it plays out. Yeah. I mean, as, as a journalist um, who has also long covered uh, these cases now, this is the third president to to be here in the Black Lives Matter era. I am right there with you. And, you know, you saw uh, President Biden uh, addressing this this verdict as well and calling this verdict a, a rare guilty uh, verdict, something that doesn't happen uh, hardly enough, as Black Americans know all too well uh, in these cases. So, uh, Farai, I want to turn to you. How have you been processing the Chauvin trial and the verdict? Oh, there's so many things. It's, you know, I um, I don't have children myself, but of course I have a lot of children that I love. And I've been thinking especially about all the people I know who have children who are entering that, you know, smelly stage of adolescence and, and entering, you know, being seen 
often in ways that make no sense and are completely culturally deterministic as adults when they are still children. You know, those 13-year-olds or 12-year-olds, the age of Tamir Rice, who start getting a little height on them. You know, it's like, like, who's a man and who's a boy is completely culturally deterministic in this society and is often used to um, paint some people as having moral agency and others as being defenseless, regardless of their age and regardless of what they've done. So I've been thinking a lot about that transitional age, which is awkward for everyone, but hopefully you get through it alive. Not always. Um, Not like Tamir Rice. Um, And then I'm thinking a lot about, you know, to the extent that I have a fixed ideology, it's that I'm a structuralist. I believe that... um, Structures determine outcomes. I mean, many things do, but but if you have a structure that is biased, you will get biased outcomes. And so if you look at the law enforcement officer's bill of rights that that Marilyn had and was, you know, a pioneer in, in the 1970s, it pretty much gave something close to blanket immunity um, for, for many um, aspects of policing. And now, you know, Marilyn having led you know, giving that kind of blanket immunity is now leading in reforming that and saying, well, you know, all of us should live under the same constitutional rights and and being a member of law enforcement. And I have a lot of respect for great law enforcement officers. I've interviewed a lot of them. There are some great law enforcement officers, but the reason that there is such a pervasive history of law enforcement officers killing people and and nothing happening is a structural issue. It is a legal issue. And so I'm really looking forward to seeing how the structural issues can change. I mean, both of you make such such great points. Uh, you know, we know from the civil rights era that just because, uh, you know, certain uh, things are legislated, the enforcement of, of that legislation does not uh, always happen. And that is the thing that matters. That is the thing that, that to potentially make a difference. So uh, I want to I want to also go to Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who was at the Congressional Black Caucus press conference after the uh, Derek Chauvin verdict. And, and she said this soon after the guilty verdict was delivered on Tuesday. Thank you, George Floyd, for sacrificing your life for justice, for being there to call out to your mom. How, how heartbreaking was that? Call out for your mom. I can't breathe. But because of you and because of thousands, millions of people around the world who came out for justice, your name will always be synonymous with justice. So people had a lot of thoughts on this that I saw. Uh, Pelosi's sentiments have been roundly criticized on social media. But April, I want to come to you because I'm wondering what you think about what this says about how the guilty verdict in this particular case is understood by certain segments of the population. People are hurt. People are upset. People are tired. Do I believe that Nancy Pelosi meant to diminish what happened? No. But there is a sensitivity from a community that's been hit so hard by this, not just this year, last year, the last eight years, the last 20 years. This has been going on for 402 years from these slave patrols up to Jim Crow to civil rights, to now. And people are finally seeing some light, not a lot of light, but some light at the end of the tunnel. And they want to call a thing a thing. He was brutally murdered because, what is it, four people were on him, one on the neck and three on the back. 
he was murdered. And I get the sensitivity. So she didn't, I don't believe, I do not believe that she meant to offend anyone. But we have to realize we have to call a thing a thing in this moment in time to keep moving towards a brighter light of of justice and, and equality. I want to talk about the expectation uh, that Black journalists provide analysis on the news about police brutality while they themselves are experiencing trauma. There's not really the same expectation for white journalists to really analyze white violence. I'm thinking specifically just back to the January 6th insurrection. And for I want to come to you because I'm wondering what you think accountability looks like for white journalists and predominantly white news organizations in this moment. First of all, nothing happens until it happens, but this will be part of what I am hoping to cover in a in a book that I'm working on. Um, it's in the stage of me writing the proposal. The mainframe of the book is not race itself, but one of the case studies is what I call the invisibilization of whiteness. Blackness and Asianness and Native American identity, et cetera, are all considered for the purposes of journalism, uh, deterministic categories that come with certain markers of whether it's criminality, income, whatever. But whiteness is not studied as a race. And I think one of the most revolutionary things that could come out of the past five years in politics and the current era is to realize that whiteness is a socially constructed racial identity with its own patterns and deterministic qualities, just like Blackness or, or Asianness. They're all social constructs. There is no biological Black race or biological white race, um, but they're social constructs that have meaning because we give them meaning. And, you know, the most of the world that we live in every day is socially constructed. And so white reporters will be asked to study Blackness sort of like a foreign country or Latino-ness, but not asked, well, what's your home country like? You know, I mean, I'm not asking for anything different for white reporters than Black reporters. White reporters should confront that whiteness has its own qualities, whether you like them or not, or whether you support all of them or not. Whiteness has qualities. And as someone, I often question why I, as like a 25-year-old Black woman, was meeting uh, people from the Ku Klux Klan face-to-face. Part of the reason I was is because white reporters weren't doing the work, because they didn't believe it was important. They thought it was like, oh, that's something that Black people went through in the 1800s. It's like, no, actually, it's completely relevant. And January 6th showed us that. So we've had people leading newsrooms who fundamentally got the story wrong and are still getting paid. And I'm just going to say that right here. Ooh, okay. This he is hot and getting hotter. And Farah, mm-hmm. please, please hurry up and write that book because I have long said, you know, whiteness is also an identity. It is an identity that needs to be covered because, again, that helps us understand who and where we are as a country and as a democracy. So, look, I want to stay on talking about the media and how it covers the Biden-Harris administration. Our friend Yamiche Alcindor was just on with you, Farai, earlier in the show, talking about her expectations about covering the Biden-Harris administration. So, April, I want to come to you uh, as somebody who is covering the White House, who has been covering uh, multiple White Houses. What are your expectations as you cover this current administration? And is your process now any different from the way that you covered the previous administration? 24 years, five presidents. Um, I mean, sometimes, you know, you say, oh, there's not going to be anything new and different. With each president, I should have never said that. You know, 
with Bill Clinton, I said, oh, there will never be any president newsier than Bill Clinton. Then comes George W. Bush. I said, oh, there will never be another president newsier than George W. Bush. Then comes the first black president. Oh, there'll never be anyone newsier than Barack Obama. Then comes Donald John Trump. Then I said, there will never be another president newsier than Donald Trump. And here comes this transformational uh, new administration, Biden-Harris. The way they approach this, I think back to Bill Clinton, how Bill Clinton was ahead of his time when it came to issues of the browning of America and race. This was the impetus of Joe Biden coming into this administration. He's got a year. He's got a year before 2022 and the Republicans try to unseat many of the Democrats in the Senate and in the House. And he's got a year to make a lot of major changes, and he's on the verge of doing this. He, I believe he could go down as the civil rights president as he's dealing with these colliding crises. We, in our lifetime, we've never seen anything like this, okay? Death, destruction, pandemic, job loss, um, you know, vaccinations, mass vaccinations to stay alive, okay? Um, education virtually. But we are moving. And this administration sees that this is a moment that they have to lift up these babies who are in school to help them learn because we have so many children who are falling behind. Okay. And then dealing with the racial reckoning, changing policing that is centuries old. Okay. Changing mindsets as it relates to structure. This is an administration like none other because we have seen times like none other. So I just watch and wait. And he's someone, he and Kamala Harris are people who um, understand governance, understand humanity, understand politics, understand diplomacy, and understand the needs of the people and, and also the wants of the people. So we'll just see. But I think it's a different administration than we've seen ever before. To your point, there are a lot of moving parts happening as this administration rounds its its first hundred days. And uh, with that, you know, there's some criticism of, of the horse race type coverage instead of focusing on some of these issues, on some of the policy uh, in the media of, of what the Biden-Harris administration is working on. Coverage that focuses on how Biden is winning or losing against his Republican rivals in Congress, for example. Uh, meanwhile, you know, here we are talking about, to your point, issues of infrastructure, gun control, climate change, withdrawing from Afghanistan, voter suppression. Uh, so, Farai, what gets lost uh, when the media pays more attention to wins and losses rather than the issues? Is there a better way to do this? There definitely is. And I think part of the question is, who are you talking to? So wins and losses matter more to the, um, you know, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and Capitol Hill crowd, people who are directly influencing policy on a granular level. Most people are, are you know, in, you know, those who even those who are engaged citizens are not looking at it from that same tactical background. And I think a lot of times you know, uh, especially prominent news organizations end up as if they're writing just for the congressional aides instead of for a broader audience, which is one reason why some people hate political news, because it seems intimidating, there's too much jargon. So I would ask all of our colleagues to say, who are you writing for? If you're writing for an insider audience, go there. And if you're not, what are you doing to frame things? One of my biggest 
concerns with news coverage is the lack of context. We have to ask ourselves, how are we serving civil society and democracy with the news coverage we do? And I think that this show that we're doing here goes deep into politics, but we're also accessible. We are here for people. I'm, you know, I I know that people on Capitol Hill listen to this show, but this show is not for Capitol Hill. It's for everybody. So let's just be cognizant of who we're trying to reach. That's exactly it. I mean, this is why you had to create our body politic. This is why we created the 19th, right? So that we weren't doing mm-hmm. horse race Absolutely. journalism, so that we were, uh, you know, thinking about the winners and losers in the country, right? The voters, the American people who are the winners and losers. And frankly, you know, April knows this too. This is why diversity matters when you have journalists mm-hmm. who are bringing not only their lived experiences to the work, but are coming into spaces with their communities in mind, with the issues that they care about. You're simply going to get a different perspective and a different kind of political journalism. And, and, and the coin of the realm, you're exactly right, cannot continue to be something that feels more insular than about who and where we are as a democracy. So with that, uh, the political tea was hot this week again. Uh, we have to leave it That's here for right. now. Uh, but April, it was great talking to you. It's, it's wonderful to be with these great minds who happen to be Black women. That's just awesome. That's right. That's awesome. Amen. And it was nice to chat with you again, Fry. Oh, it is always great to talk to you, Aaron. And April and Aaron, this has just given me so much pleasure. It's really, it's just a joy. Thank you so much for joining us on Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Lantigua Williams & Co. I'm the creator and host, Farai Chidea. Juleka Lantigua-Williams is executive producer. Paulina Velasco is senior producer. Jen Chien is executive editor. Cedric Wilson is lead producer and mixed this episode. Original music by associate sound designer Kojin Tashiro. Our producer is Priscilla Alabi. Julie Zan is our talent consultant. Production assistance from Mark Betancourt, Natina Bean, and Sarah McClure. This program is produced with support from Craig Newmark Philanthropies, from the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, from Be Me Community, a network designed to build caring and prosperous communities inspired by Black people and from generous contributions from listeners like you.